following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Well, for many, many decades, theologians have puzzled over a number of questions, and finally they've come to at least be satisfied universally about one of those problems over the generations, and that was how old was was um, Isaac when Abraham took him up to the mountain to sacrifice him. We've always wondered that, and no one could really come down to a solution that satisfied everybody, so you should be blessed to realize that you're in the generation where at least that one problem has finally been resolved, and they did that by realizing that the young age, the youngest age that Isaac could be, uh, had to qualify him as an individual who understood what sacrifice was all about and the symbolism of sacrifice. And besides the understanding of the symbolism of sacrifice, he had to be physically strong enough to carry all the wood up the mountain because his dad didn't carry it, and he put all the wood on young Isaac to carry it up. And he also had to be astute enough to take the initiative in order to realize, Dad, there's no lamb to sacrifice for this particular adventure that we are on. So as they compared theology along with cognitive childhood development, and physical capability for the amount of wood that they would have to bring up for the sacrifice of an animal, they realized that Isaac had to at least be eight years old in order to accomplish all those things to be the satisfaction of the theologians as well as those involved with childhood development. So they established the young age of which Isaac was, and everyone agreed. And then uh, establishing the oldest he could be was actually a lot easier because they realized that uh, the oldest that Isaac could possibly be in a situation like this where sacrifice was concerned was 12 years old. He can only be 12 years old and no older, because if he were 12 years, if he were any older than 12 years, he would be a teenager and it would no longer be considered a sacrifice. Hey, you know, this early in the morning, if you sort of understand, but you don't react, that's okay. But at least remember that so you can tell some of your friends. <laughs> Sacrifice is an amazing phenomenon. It's a story, and it's also a theological phenomenon. And there's always a beneficiary, but there's always someone who loses out. So for all of us who are here to understand that that is a very important theme, we see a picture like this is remember their sacrifice. Uh, we who deeply appreciate those who have served, those who have given the ultimate uh, sacrifice for our benefit and our freedom and our liberty, is something we deeply appreciate. But that foundation of appreciation has a tremendous transfer into the realm of the spiritual and the theological. In fact, that's where we turn our attention today. As we look over the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, there are five sections in this chapter, and they all deal with that particular theme of sacrifice. When somebody gives up something valuable to them for the benefit of someone else, that's when you have the makings of a sacrifice. When someone gives up something valuable to them for the benefit of others, then we have the makings of what a sacrifice is all about. So we begin our study here in Mark chapter 15, the first 15 verses when Jesus Christ is on trial. And part of what we have is Jesus Christ in his own personal suffering 
in every ounce of the suffering, no matter what perspective or from what form it takes, Jesus Christ experienced that, not because he deserved it, not because it was justified, but just the opposite. It was undeserved and unjustified, but he took all that on because that's what we deserved. So he was our substitute. He was our replacement. What he experienced was something that we should have had. When we look at the life of Jesus Christ during this time of trial in Mark 15, verses 1 through 15, we have an amazing piece of the puzzle. Because Jesus Christ not only had to go through this amazing humiliation of a trial that was trumped up one time, he didn't just have to go through it two times, but he actually went through it six times. The humiliation of being accused falsely. Jesus Christ was tried six times. Now you talk about double jeopardy, at least as something we recognize in our culture, is unjustified. It was also unjustified in the life of Jesus Christ, who was innocent from the very beginning. But he actually had to experience his humiliation six times. And those six times of Jesus Christ's trial were actually divided into two parts. First, there was the religious trial, and then there was the civil trial. So you can look at the subpoints here and realize that there were six times in which Jesus Christ was uh, tried, and for a very simple reason. The Roman Empire had now demonstrated its power over the entire known world, and they took away the freedom of any culture that they conquered, any culture that they dominated, and they took away their right to ever express in their justice system capital punishment. Rome took the exclusive privilege of capital punishment away from every conquered and overwhelmed nation. And they exclusively only would mete out capital punishment for one reason, and that was for treason. Now, as far as the Jewish culture was concerned and the religious leadership who who opposed Jesus Christ, they weren't concerned at all about treason. But according to the Jewish culture, the number one reason for someone to experience and be subjected to capital punishment was because of blasphemy. So the religious leadership who wanted Jesus Christ out of the picture and taken away so that he would no longer be competitive with regard to their authority and influence in the population, they had this kangaroo trial, kangaroo court, so that they could be satisfied that they had determined that Jesus Christ was guilty of blasphemy. And so in order to do that, they took him to Annas, and Annas was the high priest recognized by the Jewish community, not because of his official position but because of who he was before they were ever taken over by the Roman Empire. So they respected him as the real high priest. But one of the things that Rome often did when they overwhelmed a particular culture is they would take out the people of position that were recognized in positions of authority and replace it with people that they knew were also sympathetic to the Roman Empire. So they put in his place Caiaphas. So Caiaphas was next after Anna says, yes, of course, he's guilty of blasphemy. Then they took him to Caiaphas who realized that he was just a puppet high priest. So he better be doing with the people he was supposed to be representing whatever it was they wanted. He was a weak spiritual leader because he was no spiritual leader at all. He stamped, just stamped the approval of Annas to recognize that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. In order to take the high priest's idea and then to shove it into the face of any kind of legal recognition, the Sanhedrin met. This is a group of 70 individuals who recognize in positions of representing different groups of people. 
from the very conservative to the very liberal. But at this particular juncture in the life of Jesus Christ, dominated by liberal representation. But not all, but most. And in that representation, they met at nighttime, which was illegal for the Sanhedrin to meet. They can only meet when the light of the day shone. But because they were afraid of the opinion of the people that might rise up in a riot against them, because they took out their popular individual named Jesus, they met when all those people were still asleep and came up with a verdict that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. So as far as the Jewish legal system was concerned, they could take Jesus out and apply capital punishment, kill him. But they could not do that legally for Rome, or they'd be violating the Roman Empire's simple statute with regard to the application of this injustice. So they put Jesus Christ through this jeopardy again through a civil trial. But instead of going to the Roman authorities and saying he's guilty of blasphemy, they said he is guilty of treason. So they brought him before Pilate, brought him through before Herod, brought him back to Pilate again, who was trying to get out of this opportunity to try and give a just statement, which would not agree with the evidence that he saw. And that's why he washed his hands free of any guilt on his part with regard to who this person Jesus was. It was a trumped-up trial on all six occasions. A prejudiced opinion that was determined by those who had a position of power and justice, and they misapplied their authority. From that particular perspective, then, we see here a tremendous comparison and contrast. Peter, who denied Jesus Christ three times, when he had the opportunity to speak boldly and favorably to the king that he believed was the Messiah. Three times. And Jesus Christ suffered this unjust justice. Six times, twice as many opportunities. And Jesus Christ never spoke up to try to fight what was God's will for him to finally experience. Peter got off easy, but he failed every single time. Jesus Christ experienced hardship. Twice as many times as Peter. And he suffered on purpose so that all of us could enjoy what grace and mercy was all about. I don't know if you've ever experienced double jeopardy or if you've ever been accused falsely of anything in your life, but the humiliation for us as individuals is stunning. Think back on the last time you were humiliated. Could you ever defend yourself? Could you ever speak up? Did anyone ever champion you and take your place? Jesus Christ did that for every single one of us. One of the amazing things after this is Pilate decided, I'm going to wash my hands of this, so he gave orders to the soldiers to take Jesus Christ away. In this particular juncture here, as Jesus Christ was led away by the soldiers, they were salivating at the opportunity to do what they loved to do with their sadistic spirit. Take their position of power, not of influence, but simply brutal power, and have their way with anyone who had been judged by their superiors. Now they could wreak havoc on this individual. And that's exactly what the soldiers did. A whole company of uh, Roman soldiers is about uh, maybe two to three hundred men. A legion of soldiers is about six thousand. And a... a, um, a cohort is about one-tenth of a legion of 600. So this auxiliary battalion, which theologians seem to agree, was about two or 300 soldiers. So you can imagine what it's like for Jesus Christ to be there among two or 300 who had this sadistic appetite 
to hurt and inflict someone with pain. They struck him repeatedly. They spit on him. It was a horrible moment. They mocked him in the middle of all that physical pain. I was trying to think back on the last time that uh, I was uh, had a horrible scar in my life with regard to humiliation, and it wasn't nearly as bad as what Jesus Christ faced. But in high school, I was a, I was on the wrestling team, and I know that that might seem strange to you that me, Bruce Fong, being a man of the mat, a grappler of the gridiron, but I was there face to face, squaring off with different guys, with one purpose, and that was to dominate that individual on the mat. And I wasn't very good at what I was doing because I had never learned anything about wrestling. I just figured that's about the only only sport that I can make make the team. So I showed up on the first day of uh, turnouts for wrestling. I was a junior in high school. And I sat there with all these other tough-looking guys, so I did my best to try to look tough like all of them. And I said, hey, when are we going to start? And they said, whenever the coach shows up. And I looked at the clock, and we were already 20 minutes past the hour when the team was supposed to meet the coach. And all of a sudden, the door opened, and inside walked not the wrestling coach, but the football coach. And he announced to us that the wrestling coach had just quit. So he now had the jurisdiction to oversee the wrestling season for all of us on the mat. So he sat down, and he pulled up a chair, and he looked at all of us, and he pulled out a book from his briefcase. It was a book on wrestling, and he began to read it to us. That was our coaching for the season. I thought to myself, this is not a place where I thought I'd ever be. Listen to someone read about coaching those who are on the wrestling team. But I was also very successful in the world of music, so I was in the marching band. Had a great season, and the band voted that I would become the drum major for the next season. So I thought, well, this is a great honor, but I knew that that responsibility carried with it a great deal of time investment because I had to plan all of the halftime shows. I had to be responsible for leading the pep band. I also had the responsibility of responding to all the community invitations for parades and for any kind of charitable event where they wanted a band to play. So I knew that there was no way that I could be both the drum major of that amazing band and at the same time continue to be on the wrestling team. So when it came time to sign up for the classes, I just didn't sign up for wrestling. And I remember walking down the hallway, and it was crowded one day as a senior, looking forward to my last year in high school. Suddenly, a strong hand gripped my shoulder. And I thought to myself, man, what's this? And I didn't even have a chance to turn around because of the strong grip of that football coach that was on my shoulder whipped me around and looked at me square in the face. He says, Fong, why didn't you sign up for wrestling? And I didn't want to say, well, you're a lousy coach, and I didn't learn a thing last year. <laughs> I just simply said, well, I got elected drum major, and those responsibilities are going to take all the extra time I've got. And he looked at me almost nose to nose and he says, go play with your silly band. And he pushed me halfway across the hall and he stomped off. Well, that was a real friendly expression. And then then came time for the football season, of course. The band is a big part of the football season and we get the crowd cheering and we get the crowd singing and we're out there with our uniforms and we're marching everything with the precision and We went out to the field and played the national anthem. We got a standing ovation from the visiting uh, team members. And I was marching the team. I was marching our band off the field. And the coach ran up. The football coach ran up. Got in my face and stopped me from marching. And he says, get your blankety-blank band off of my football field. 
It's about the only time that my highly disciplined band ever broke rank and all turned and looked at what the yelling was all about. That's a high school kid. How in the world do you live up to that kind of dress down in one of the most dressed up moments of the first game of the year when all the fans and all the band and all the parents and all the players are watching this football coach screaming his head off at the drum major? I had no recourse. I couldn't say anything. I was too stunned, too shocked, too inexperienced. But the next time it came for the band to strike up a tune for the football team to cheer them on, there was no hesitation on my part because I knew I was there to serve that team. That very gladly at that day lost the game. And they lost every other game that season except for the last one. That coach never said a thing as he walked off every game, never looking once in the direction of the band. But I don't know if I ever, ever was healed from that humiliation and that dress down by a coach who was an authority. When I look at this, particularly in its its, uh, experience here, when Jesus Christ is mocked by soldiers who are in a position of influence and power, man, oh man, I think Jesus Christ, because of who he was, could have said anything he wanted to stop what the soldiers were doing, who had the power and authority to exercise anything he could to protect himself. But he just took it all. And I remind myself many times at the mockery that Jesus Christ experienced. He took that for me. Even though he could have stopped every word and every action, he did that for me. This amazing time of these soldiers overwhelming Jesus Christ and making fun of all the claims about who he was, hurting him physically, psychologically overwhelming him, led him to be crucified at that particular juncture. These soldiers played a huge part in the ignominious death of Jesus Christ, his humiliation. You can personify yourself in this particular story in the last time that you were mocked, humiliated by someone in a position of power over your life. Well, Jesus Christ was crucified, and at that particular juncture, he was so overwhelmed by the beating he took, he couldn't even carry the cross up to the place of crucifixion, so they just grabbed this guy, Simon of Cyrene, drafted him in that particular situation, and made him carry the cross on behalf of Jesus. Physically, Jesus Christ could not do it. They divided up his clothes, the last vestige of any kind of worldly possession, and they divided it up so they could personally could keep it. This all started about the third hour, and as you remember from last week, we said this is the beginning of Jewish time, as the scripture pointed out with regard to the Passover. That's how we know that it's the Jewish timetable, which starts at 6 o'clock in the morning to begin a new day. So if this is the third hour and the crucifixion happened, by our reckoning and our timetable, it started at 9 o'clock in the morning. They hurled insults at Jesus when he's up there. Nothing like respecting people who try to hurt somebody who's already hurting and bound so that he cannot respond or defend himself. Don't have a whole lot of regard for people who take advantage of others in a situation like that. The preachers, the, the priests and the teachers mocked Jesus and they crucified him with tremendous insults that were heaped on him. Jesus dies on the cross and the scriptures tell us 
here in Mark 15 that it was about the sixth hour. But again, by Jewish reckoning, it was by noon on that day of Friday when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross that darkness came throughout the land. And this special three-hour period from the sixth to the ninth hour from noon until three o'clock in the afternoon on Good Friday or any day that we want to pretend like we're trying to image what in the world happened in the life of Jesus Christ. Hanging on the cross from nine in the morning until noon at noon, all of a sudden, the entire world went dark, all the way until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, for the last half of the six hours that Jesus Christ was on the cross. And during that last time, from the end of the period, from noon until 3 o'clock, Jesus Christ asked this question, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Somewhere in that period of noon to 3 And probably we'll still fight among theologians, but I suggest to you that that indicates to us when the worst part of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ's life ever occurred. And that wasn't the physical flogging. That wasn't the mockery by the soldiers. All that was horrible. But the worst part of Jesus Christ's death for us was when he was separated from his fellowship with the Father. The sacrifice for sin means there must be a separation between the Father and us because of our sin. But that separation must be for eternity. When in the world did Jesus Christ ever get separated from the Father for eternity? For each one of us. Even when we look at the reckoning here in the Gospel of Mark, it was for simply three hours. When darkness came over the earth, Jesus Christ says, My God, why have you forsaken me? And then all of a sudden we have here that Jesus Christ breathed his last, or the last words, found in another gospel. But with those last words, it is finished. Jesus Christ breathed his last. May I suggest to you something that we in our human minds can never understand. And it was only done one time in the eternity of God's tremendous sovereign power. To make it possible for not just one of us, but for all of us, and not just for all of us, but for all who've ever lived and ever will live. That the separation between the Father and the Son occurred in a given period of time of three hours, but it lasted for eternity because it's that precious of a relationship. That's what Jesus Christ suffered for all of us. And while we can never, ever, in our minds, comprehend three hours equaling up to eternity, that beautiful relationship of fellowship between the Father and the Son, to be separated for any length of time, according to human understanding, was equivalent to eternity. Something that was one that should never be broken was sacrificed so that we could have eternal life with him forever. So sometime practice that. Just imagine 12 noon. Okay, it starts. It started really at 9, but at 12 noon, all the way to 3 o'clock. Imagine what goes on in our lives. And imagine what happened in the life of Jesus Christ. It was such a powerful moment that one of the centurions, one of the soldiers, maybe who had participated in the mockery of Jesus Christ, makes this outstanding verbal testimony and confession without any apology, in verse 39. Surely this man was 
the Son of God. So powerful here on the cross as we see that the women here are then given as a moment of the most tender features of these last two episodes. The only time when there is any kind of tenderness when these women were given this acclamation in inspired scripture. Well, Jesus Christ is buried, and one of the most amazing things about this burial is that the burial is brought up as a big deal in the scripture because that is an affirmation that Jesus Christ actually died. To prove that Jesus Christ expired, his life ended, from the standpoint of how we perceive it humanly, Jesus Christ was buried. That is a confirmation. Joseph was likely a believer, Joseph of Arimathea, even though he is part of the Sanhedrin. As we said, that there was a domination at this time in the life of Christ by those who were the, the extremists, those who were the individuals who believed strongly in what they believed from the standpoint of what the nation of Israel should be done, doing nationally. But there's a conservative group who started to look at the life of Jesus Christ differently, but did not speak up when the majority dominated the discussion and said, this is a false Messiah. There are a few in that group, and it seems like Joseph was one of them because of his tremendous courage after Jesus Christ was killed. He asked for the body of Jesus Christ, which suggested to us here that as Pilate says, well, how can I grant that request? It's only been a few hours. Surely this person that you request, Jesus, cannot be dead. In order to confirm that, he asked his soldiers, the professionals who knew what it was like for a person to expire. And the centurion told Pilate, yes, it is true. Jesus is already dead. From that particular perspective, we have in the life of Jesus Christ this amazing occasion when we see that sacrifice was given in such an overwhelming sense of prophetic fulfillment, personal fulfillment, and what it means to sacrifice. And that is simply to give up something valuable to you for the benefit of of someone else. So I know that's heavy, so let me finish on a little bit of a lighter note. If you think about sacrifice of giving up something valuable for the benefit of others, you may not have heard of that expedition group that was climbing Mount Everest, a group of five. There are four Californians and one Texan in the group. And they were very close to the summit, and it was because it was a lot warmer than normal. The stanchions began to pull out of the rock that was expanding as the, as the warmth of the, of the climb had, had reached its pinnacle. And as they started to fall, because their ropes were now being let go by the stanchions, uh, all five of these guys were hanging from a rope with just two stanchions left holding the rope up to the rock. And when the top guys started to climb up, all the torque and the tension from the standpoint of physics pulled the last, second to last stanchion out, and he came back down and grasped onto that rope with all his might. Only one stanchion holding that rope with five guys. Experienced climbers, they begin to discuss this whole business. This stanchion won't hold. There's no way that the rope and the stanchion will hold all five of us. The only way we're going to survive is someone's got to let go and release some of the weight and the pressure. Otherwise, we'll all die. Someone has to sacrifice their life. And one Californian says, I, 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 I'm not going to do that. Another one says, I, I'm not going to do that either. Hey, don't call on me, the third one said. And the fourth one says, I've got too much to live for. So it came down to the Texan. And he spoke this amazing speech. He said, I've lived a full life. And I love my family and I'm going to miss them. 
but they knew there were risks when I came on this trip. So I volunteer. I will let go, sacrifice my life so the rest of you, all four of you, could live. Well, this Texan gave such a moving speech that all four Californians started to applaud. (laughs) If you could remember that the word sacrifice simply means to give up something valuable to you. Give it up so that others can benefit from it. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did, and that's the testimony of Mark 15. Have a great time of discussion during your table talk. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.